Amen. Thank you, Becky, and thanks be to God for his living word. There are two types of people in this story. One man is blind, and he knows it. And there are a whole lot of others who are blind, but they have no clue. And the question it puts before us is, have you seen your blindness? Have you come to recognize your blindness? I heard the story of a little three-year-old girl. She was in children's church. And the teacher was trying to get her to eat little carrots for snack time. And the little girl didn't like carrots. So the teacher said to her, they'll help you see. And the little girl responded, I can see. And that's the way a lot of us are are spiritually. As awful as it is to be physically blind, there is a far worse condition, and that is to think you can see everything clearly when in reality you are blind spiritually. So I ask you again, have you seen your blindness? In this chapter, Jesus brings light into the darkness of this world by opening the eyes of a man who was born blind, while those who think they see clearly prove that they're the ones who are truly blind. Let's start with the amazing miracle in verses 1 through 12. Jesus doesn't just say, I am the light of the world, as he claimed in chapter 8. He proves his authority to say it by healing a man born blind. We read in verse 1, as Jesus is passing by, he sees a man who has been blind from birth. And we need to just pause there for a moment and recognize that before this man ever sees Jesus, Jesus sees him. And that's true for every one of us. Before we ever see Jesus, he sees us. He notices us. He cares for us. He feels compassion toward us. And he does this for us when we're not even looking for his help, when we're oblivious toward our need. Can you imagine what it would be like to be blind from birth, to never see the light of the sun, to never know the difference between red and blue and green, to not be able to describe a rainbow or what the falling rain looks like? to never have seen snow covering the ground, to never have looked into your parents' eyes and seen their love and affection for you, to never have seen the loveliness of a wife or the tenderness of a baby. This man has lived in this misery from birth. But the disciples aren't feeling what Jesus is feeling toward this man. They don't share in Jesus' compassion. Instead of being moved toward his plight, they're suspicious. They're wondering, what has he done? 
What have his parents done to merit this miserable affliction? And we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples here because we can often do the same thing. When we're enjoying life and all is well, we blithely think, like in the sound of music, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Or when things are going badly and we're having trouble, we wonder, what have I done to deserve this? But Jesus encourages us to look in a whole different direction. You might never get an answer to the question, why you are suffering or why someone else is suffering. God is not committed to answering that question in this life, and probably that question is not even going to matter in the life to come. But what would change in our lives if we really believe that Jesus is at work, that he's getting things done in and through our suffering that will put his glory on display and result in everlasting joy for us? What if we shifted our gaze to who Jesus is and the work Jesus is doing in and through our suffering? That's what Jesus encourages us to do in verses 3 to 5. He answers his disciples, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, let's not get confused about what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that he's going to stop working in the world after he leaves the world. He's not saying that there will ever come a time when he will cease being the light of the world. To the contrary, Jesus is going to die, then be raised from the dead, and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Then he's going to pour his spirit out on his church, and then his disciples are going to do even greater works in his name as his spirit empowers them. But what Jesus is making clear here is that there is a work he has come into the world to do, and he is determined to get it done. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from doing the work that the Father gave him to do. So Jesus gets to work. He spits on the ground, and he makes some mud, and he spreads it over the blind man's eyes. Then he sends him to a pool named Siloam, which means scent. He sends him to scent pool. And the man goes, washes his eyes, and comes back, and he's seen everything clearly for the first time in his life. An amazing miracle. Never in history has anything like this been done before. Never in the Old Testament has any prophet opened the eyes of a man born blind. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Elisha. Jesus is showing us here that just as he is the eternal word through whom the world was created, and he had the power to create the world in the beginning, he also has the power now to make a new creation where the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, 
and the blind will see. This is what the Old Testament yearned for. Isaiah the prophet repeatedly spoke of the time of the Messiah when he would come and listen, Isaiah 35, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That glorious time has arrived, Jesus is saying. Jesus is bringing the dawn of a new creation. He is God's servant who opens the eyes that are blind, and no one's ever seen anything like it before. So it's not surprising that the neighbors who had only ever known this man as a blind beggar are confused. Some of them don't even recognize him now that he can see. But he keeps telling them, I am the one. I'm the one who was blind. And when they ask him how it all happened, the only thing the man can tell them is that there was a man called Jesus. This man called Jesus. And then he describes what Jesus did for him. Now listen, this is where salvation begins for every single person. There is a man called Jesus. And what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. There are still many people in the world today who do not know the name. Of Jesus. They don't know where he is or how to find him. They don't even know that they need him. We have the privilege, we have the mandate to make his name known, to speak his name, to share his name, to honor his name, to praise his name, to our neighbors, to the nations, because his name is wonderful. His name is beautiful. His name is powerful. His name gives life to the dead and sight to the blind and light to those who are in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. But you know this from experience. Light can have an illuminating effect and light can also have a blinding effect. When you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light, the light illumines the darkness so that you can see your way around. But if you're driving down a dark road at night and a big semi-truck comes toward you and shines its bright lights in your eyes, it can be blinding. It can be disorienting. So in this next section, we're going to see how some people are actually blinded by the light of the world. It's crazy, but not everyone is happy about this blind man seeing. And in verses 13, and 14, 13 through 34, we're going to see their hardness of heart on display. Let's consider the hardened heart of those who think they see clearly in this passage. We learn an important detail in verse 14. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. 
Doesn't this seem like variations on the same thing? The Lord of the Sabbath loves to do his work of mercy and compassion and healing on the Sabbath. He's making a point here. But according to the law, people weren't allowed to knead dough, to knead dough on the Sabbath. And I guess someone could argue that spitting into the dirt and making mud is a form of kneading. So an investigation ensues. And the testimony of the man remains consistent. He simply keeps telling them what happened. But the Pharisees are divided in verse 16. Some of them are blinded by the evidence right in front of their eyes that the Messiah has come because all they can think about is that he made mud with his saliva on the Sabbath. And that is unacceptable. Others are arguing, but there's no way a sinner could perform such signs. They're open to the reception of the light. So they ask the blind man what he thinks about the man since he opened your eyes. And notice as this investigation goes forth, there's an increasing clarity in this man's understanding of who Jesus is. Every time the beggar who used to be blind gets pressed, he gets more bold in confessing what he believes about Jesus. So this time in verse 17, he answers, he's a prophet. That's a step in the right direction. He's moving from cluelessness into clarity about who Jesus is. But the Jews do not believe that he was blind and received this, his sight until they call the man's parents. And the parents acknowledge this is their son. They can't deny that. And yes, he was born blind. And it's clear that they have a growing sense that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't want to confess it publicly because they're afraid that they would be banned from the synagogues as outcasts. So they punt the question back to their son in verse 21. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. So the religious leaders summon the man who had been blind for a second time. And in verse 24, they speak blasphemously when they urge him to give glory to God by agreeing that Jesus is a sinner. Think about that. Give glory to God by agreeing with us that Jesus is a sinner. And don't you love the blind man's answer? Look at verse 25. This is one of those golden jewels of a Bible verse. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Yes, <laughs> praise God. I was blind, now I see. That I know. And to that, everyone who has experienced the life and light of Jesus coming into our lives can say, this is my story. This is my song. Once I was blind, but now I see. And we love to sing about it. I was thinking about that verse. I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. 
had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. It might be that that's exactly what someone in your life needs to hear from you today. Wouldn't it be neat if you told the story of how you once were blind, but now you see, to someone who's sitting in church with you at the end of this service? You just say, could I just tell you a minute? I once was blind, now I see. Here's what Jesus did for me. Or if you told that story, who in your circle of acquaintances could benefit from hearing your testimony this week of how once you were blind, but now you see because Jesus opened your eyes. And what is it that you see clearly now that he has opened your eyes? Well, sadly, not everyone will rejoice to hear this good news. In this man's case, his joyful testimony only agitates these religious leaders. They do what human nature always does when we know we're losing an argument. What do we do? We just shout louder. We just start repeating ourselves. And the man gets bolder and bolder with them. I love verse 27. I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? He's starting to become an evangelist now. And they're outraged. They claim to be disciples of Moses, whom God spoke to. But they say, we don't know where Jesus is from. And the man responds in verse 30. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he is from, where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. I love this phrase. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. And that is true. This guy's been living with this his whole life long. He's never heard of anyone who could possibly change his condition from birth. But Jesus has done it. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Do you hear how his faith is growing in the face of opposition? First, it was just, all I know is his name is Jesus. Then it was, he's a prophet. Then it was, I was blind, but now I see. And now he's saying, this man must be from God. And the more they speak against Jesus, the more his confidence in Jesus rises. But the more he speaks of Jesus, the hearts of the opposition harden all the more. They accuse him of being born entirely in sin. They are indignant that he would dare to teach them anything, and they throw him out. We have here a living example of one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. Isaiah 6, verse 9. They keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
They keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They have no awareness of their need, no sobering sense of their own sinfulness, no awareness of the state of their own hearts, no willingness to repent. They are self-satisfied. They think they see everything just fine, when in reality, they are blind as bats spiritually. And they are hardening in their blindness. There's an important insight here for you and me. In fact, it's more than important. This could spell the difference between life and death, heaven and hell for us. You can never remain neutral to Jesus. Every time you are confronted with Jesus, you will either soften or harden. You can't remain neutral. Ray Orland Jr. said, the one thing the gospel never does is nothing. (laughs) We either soften or we harden when we're confronted with the reality of Jesus and his word, but we never stay just the same. His light will either illuminate our minds and our hearts or his light will blind us. And in the case of the religious leaders, the light of the world was a blinding light. In the case of the blind beggar, the light of the world brought illumination and life. This should have a sobering effect on our hearts. For who are the real blind ones in this story? It's the religious leaders. It's the ones who are in church, so to speak. The ones who think they can see. And what do they do with the only man who's actually seeing things clearly? They kick him out of church. And sadly, that's what happens whenever spiritual pride takes over. Especially when spiritual pride takes over the hearts of the religious leaders of a church or fellowship. Pray often that God would make our elders and leaders humble people. Pray for humility, humility, humility. That we wouldn't think we see more than we really see. That we wouldn't be complacent with what we know. That we wouldn't grow distant toward the truth of who Jesus really is. Because when spiritual pride takes over, especially when it takes over the leaders, and when pride blinds us, we end up casting out from our midst the only ones who can truly see. And that's how many a church and many a denomination has become nothing more than the blind leading the blind. Because spiritual pride took over And the ones who truly knew Jesus and truly loved the word of Jesus and truly esteemed the gospel of Jesus eventually had to leave or were kicked out. Many pastors have been kicked out of churches because of spiritual pride in those who were leading. And they didn't want to have someone in their midst who truly saw Jesus clearly. So if we're listening well to God's word this morning, we should be asking ourselves, how well do I really see? And the best diagnostic test you can take to check your spiritual vision is not by looking at a chart on the wall. It's by how the Lord Jesus Christ 
appears to you? Do you realize your need for Jesus more every day? Do you feel like that blind beggar where you're down so low, you've got nothing to bring to Jesus but your desperate need? Is that you? I loved how Pastor Ray Orland put it. If that's where your heart is at, the closer Jesus gets to you, the more you will light up. But if you're comfortable that you can see everything just fine, the closer Jesus gets to you, the more resistant you'll become. Do you need Jesus more every day? Or do you need him less? That's the best diagnostic test of the quality of your spiritual vision. Lastly, this morning, I want us to experience the hope this story brings to those who see their spiritual blindness, to those who recognize, I need Jesus to give me sight. I love the way verse 35 begins. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. (laughs) When you're feeling cast out of fellowship, when you're feeling rejected by people in your life, there is a man of sorrows who is despised and rejected by men and who is acquainted with grief, who knows exactly what you're feeling. And what does he do in those moments? He goes looking for you. He comes to draw you into fellowship with himself. He wants you to know that though others will forsake you, he never will. He's the friend of sinners, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He finds you just like he found this man who once was blind. It's like Jesus has been waiting for this perfect moment, this divine opportunity to draw this man whose physical sight he had restored into a living, loving, lasting union and fellowship with Christ himself. The restoration of physical sight is not the greatest miracle this man's going to experience. That was just a prelude. That was just a sign of the much more profound reception of spiritual sight that's about to flood into this man's heart. When he found him, Jesus asked him, verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is the one who in Daniel 7 comes before the Ancient of Days and is given dominion and a kingdom. And he's the one who will exercise judgment over all humanity. He is the Messiah. Verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, the man asked. I love this man's honesty. Throughout this story, he never claims more or less than what he truly believes to be the truth. He never pretends. He is the man who never lies, who's always honest. There's a humility about him that makes him receptive to the light of the world as he shines into this man's heart. And precisely at this moment, when this man is saying, who is he, sir? 
that I may believe in him, precisely at this moment, the one who gave him physical sight removes the last blinders from the eyes of his heart and shows him the reality of who he really is. Verse 37, Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And immediately, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ penetrates this man's heart and he believes and confesses Jesus to be the Lord and worships him. Literally, the verb means that he fell on his face, prostrate before the Lord of life and light in humble adoration. <laughs> now think about everything this man has seen since Jesus gave him physical sight. All the wonders he has taken in. The sun, the stars, the birds, the children, his parents, what food really looks like. But out of everything this man has seen this day, it is the sight of Jesus' glory that drives him to his knees. That's the thing that really astonishes him. It's the sight that's most enthralling. Once he was blind, but now he sees. That has become doubly true for this man. And his response reminds me of one of the old hymns my Nana Hazel loved to sing. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. I pray that's the effect this story will have on you. Worship. Adoration. A spiritual sight that leads to a deep love for the Savior because no one can remain neutral. Verse 39 is really the climax of this whole story. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. That might sound like a contradiction of what we read in John 3, verse 17, where Jesus says, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is not saying something different here. The purpose of his coming into the world is not to judge or to condemn, but to give the light of salvation so that those who are blind spiritually can receive their sight and believe. That is Jesus' purpose. But the outcome or the impact or the result or the fallout of his coming is twofold. For some, there will be salvation. For others, judgment. Jesus has the power to make the blind see. And his purpose in coming into this world was to do just that for you and for me. But if your heart resists him and refuses him, he also has the power to make the seeing blind. And your sin of spiritual blindness is a sin that will remain if you do not repent and turn to Jesus. That's how the chapter ends. So don't insist on thinking you can see just fine without Jesus. 
Don't take refuge in your own spiritual pride. Don't imagine you're enlightened when you're living by the light of your own counsel and your own wisdom. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't be that foolish person. Realize your need for the light of the world to shine into your heart. Years ago, I was reading the autobiography of a man named Thomas Halliburton, who experienced the sight-giving power of Jesus way back in 1698. And he said, I cannot be positive about the day or hour of my conversion, but I am sufficiently sure of its effects. And he described his conversion as the opening of his blind eyes through the reading of the word of God as he prayed for light. And he described the light that he could now see in nine particular ways. He says, it was a heavenly light. It shone above me. It opened heaven to me. It led me up, as it were, to heaven. It was a true light, exposing the falsehoods about myself and the world and God that I had so long entertained. It was a pleasant light. It was a distinct and clear light. It was a satisfying light. It was a refreshing and healing light, warming me and my life. It was a great light, a powerful light, dissipating the thick darkness that had overspread my mind, and it was a composing light, not like lightning that appears in a moment and disappears, leaving terror behind, but it composed and quieted my soul that had been troubled about so many things. And then he concludes his testimony with these words. I know that no words can express the notion that the weakest Christian who has his eyes opened really has of the glory of this light. No words can convey a true notion of light to the blind. And he that has eyes, at least while he sees it, will need no words to describe it. I wonder, can you resonate with that man's description? Have you seen this heavenly, true, pleasant, distinct and clear, satisfying, refreshing, great, powerful, and composing light of the world starting to shine into your heart? Have you fallen before him in worship and adoration saying, I believe, Lord? If you have not, but you would like to do so, you would like to see who Jesus is. I would encourage you to follow the example of this once blind beggar and simply ask Jesus, who are you that I may believe in you? Go to God's word in the Bible. Ask him to open your eyes that you may see him more clearly because that's where faith begins. It begins when you see that you are blind and you need Jesus, the light of the world, to give you sight. And that's exactly what he came into this world to do, to give sight to the blind. Let's pray.